Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Howard David Live. We take a bite of the Big Apple with Mike Vaccaro, outstanding columnist for the New York Post. Uh, Mike, uh, I, I was just watching the, the uh, Open Championship, and it started me to thinking about the golf fan. As Tiger Woods walks down the fairway, everybody yelling out, Tiger! Not once does he turn around and go, what? Never. Shouldn't he respond? Howard, I'm sorry, I didn't hear that question. No, I said, I said, and watching Tiger Woods, okay? Yep. And the fans yell out, Tiger! Why doesn't he turn around and go, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's kind of the same thing that, that I've been wondering lately in the last 10 years of baseball. It seems like nobody tips their cap anymore. Yeah. Pitcher, pitcher walks up the mound for throwing a three-hitter, and uh, it's a standing ovation, and he just kind of like smiles and walks in the dugout. Uh, you know, I used to tip my cap when I would, you know, Take a good ball and turn you know, a two-two count. <laughs> but I guess I guess athletes today are a different uh, a different copyright. The other thing is they always you always hear a guy yell out, "Go in the hole!" and they never go in the hole. <laughs> you almost think, think they should do the Costanza and say, "Don't go in the hole." <laughs> do the opposite. <laughs> well, it's it's a, I don't, throughout your career, how many times can you say that one guy attracts? The majority of everybody because of who he is and that 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 obviously defines tiger woods's career and how great he has been winning all the majors and so on and uh for my money the greatest golfer of all time with all due respect to jack nicholas what tiger has done the shots that he has made in his career and the great comeback after at, at augusta after a huge gap between the first time he won it he's just one of those guys that even you as a guy who's writing about it it's, he, he, I mean, he makes you stand up and go, "Wow!" Yeah, he does. I, I covered a couple of Masters uh, when uh, Jack made, made 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 a run or two on you know Friday or Saturday. And, you know, when he was doing that, you know, because he was doing it in his you know sixties, then um, you know, he, he didn't seem like anybody else in the course. But uh, that that was because he was contending at age sixty one. You know, on a Saturday in Augusta. I mean. You know, all, all Tiger has to do is show up, and he's going to get that kind of attention, no matter how badly he's playing. You know, he's apparently playing pretty badly today. I think he's plus four through six. Um, you know, it's well, you know, we say I say it's playing badly. It's playing badly for the Tiger Woods we know. You know, if you and me go to a custom, you know, go, go to St. Andrews and we're shooting, 
you know, plus four for six, we're, you know, we're, we're throwing a parade for ourselves. Right. Unfortunately, Tiger's become a lot more, uh, he, he's a lot more relevant to the, to the average golfer now than he ever was before, which is sad, but it also speaks to his appeal that he still gets the biggest galleries. There's no question. Uh, I've been fortunate enough when I covered the Masters for CBS Radio for 15 years and got a chance to play the course twice. Uh, you, you People don't seem to realize, they know how tough it is because the greens are so tough. The bunkers are tough. The undulations on the green makes it difficult. But tee to green, it's not a particularly hard golf course. Right, and, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, that, that, that's the thing. When you, when, when you think about... Uh, what Tiger did, and what Tiger did in his prime. Um, the fact of the matter is, I mean, it's, it, it shouldn't just be talent that uh, makes you that much better, because everybody who's, who's on the tour is good enough to negotiate those courses because of what you just said. But there was something extra that Tiger had, which you know, a lot of times was just making ridiculous putts and making incredible up and downs, and you know, going par, 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 par when that's what you needed. And that's uh, that, you know, that, 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 that's when you realize just how hard the the mental part of the game is. I mean, the physical part of the game is hard enough for some of us, but at that level, they're all really good players. It's uh, it's what comes between the years that counts most. And, you know, if you saw Tiger enough, you realize he had that 100%. Well, he has that effect, too, on the guys that are playing with him during the course of a tournament uh, because the size of the gallery and the 95% of them are there to cheer on Tiger that you can see how it can be intimidating to whoever he's playing with. Uh, the biggest controversy going on now is with this LIV tour uh, f- uh, funded by the Saudis and the PGA tour. I thought Tiger came out, and good for him that he, he offered an opinion. Uh, he said, basically, these players have turned their back on the PGA tour, and I can't say I disagree. Yeah, you know, it, it's uh, like, is, is the PGA completely in the right? Have they been pristine? Of course not. But uh, to do this, I mean, uh, I, I think they're going to regret this. These players who have defected to the LIV tour um, years from now, um, because people aren't going to forget. You know, I mean, people people know who's fronting this tour. People know who's financing this tour, and they know what they've done. Um, they know why they're doing the golf and the other sports, you know, ventures that they're involved in. And I just don't think it's, think it's going to go away. You know, and you know, maybe, maybe Phil Mickelson won't care. You know, he's counting his you know, $200 million or so, but um, I think I, you know, I think it does matter. And look, the thing about Tiger, he's had a, he's had a you know, wealth of critics through the years, and you know, a lot of that criticism has been merited. Um, he's, you know, he's, he's behaved poorly, you know, off the, floor, off the course, on the course. Mm-hmm. But the one thing about, about Tiger that was never in question, from day one, he knew what, he knew how important legacy means in golf. You know, he's a guy who, you know, was, was very quick to talk about having the Jack Nicholas, you know, stuff in his room where he you know, detailed all of his major wins. It mattered to Tiger to be remembered in the context of the greats, you know, and I just don't think that these players in the LAV tour, if it has a kind of life, you know, a longer life than a lot of us expected to have, if it does, you know, you know continue to, to survive, you know, 10, 15 years down the road, I don't think, uh, you know, Dustin Johnson or, or, or Patrick Reed is going to have a chance to be, remembered in the same context as Tiger or Jack or Lee Trevino or Ben Hogan or, you know, any of these guys. And, you know, Tiger has always been true to that. Tiger has always always been about his legacy. It's why he always cared so much about the majors. It's why he always built a schedule around playing in the majors. It's why he always made it fairly clear, even if he never said the actual words, 
you know, he clearly was eyeing Jack's record for you know for when he was 15 years old. And so, you know, from that standpoint, Tiger is the same exact guy now, and he was then, and he hasn't changed. And yes, he's made a lot of money. And cynics will say, well, it's easy for him to talk about turning back on the PGA Tour and how these guys in the LIV Tour took the easy money when Tiger has made, you know, half a billion dollars in endorsements, which came away from the golf course. But those endorsements all came because of what he did on the golf course. So mm-hmm. I don't think it's hypocritical, and I, and, and I, you know, I do salute him because he's never, he's never wavered. You know, he's from day one been about his legacy and about what that legacy will mean in terms of the other all-time greats who ever played the sport, and uh, he's been true to that. He's Mike Vaccaro, columnist from the New York Post. Um, through all your years of writing and covering all sports, and it's certainly in New York where there's so many storylines and so many teams to cover, uh, what's going on now in baseball with the Mets where they are and the Yankees where they are? And the Mets have just completed a winning two out of three from their, their arch rival Atlanta Braves. So it's July, putting things in proper perspective. They, these two teams are going to play each other 12 more times between now and the end of the year. What do you take away from this if you're the Mets? We've accomplished something. Uh, this is just another step. Uh, how much importance do you place on their beating Atlanta two out of three? Well, if you're a Mets fan who tends to be a little bit uh, sky is falling in nature, uh, I, I think you can take a deep breath and say, okay, they, 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 they showed me something. I don't have any such worries about the Mets themselves because from day one, uh, thanks almost entirely to Buck Showalter's influence. You know they've been unimpressed by when by, 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 by when they played well, and unpanicked by when they've not played well, and they've they, 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 they simply gone about their business. And I think this is a byproduct of that. Look, the Mets went in there a wounded team. No Jeff McNeil, no Starling Marte. They're both all stars. Obviously, uh, you know Degrom is still is still uh, is still on the shelf. And, you know, the Braves aren't entirely whole, but they are certainly more whole than the Mets. And they went into Atlanta, and they beat, they beat them two out of three. And that's a good thing, and it shows who they are as a team. But afterward, you know, it really shows who they are as a team also, because he said, look, it's, so it's a series win in July. It's great. You know, you know, maybe, you know, but, you know, we fully intend to see the Braves the rest of the season and expect to be fighting with them for the pennant, and that's how it should be. And to me, that's... That's a sign of a mature team, you know. It's not a team that's too impressed by itself or too worried when things go wrong. Which is, you look. I mean, they're still they're still a team without a very long losing streak this year. I think their longest losing streak is three, and I think they've only done that once or twice. Um, you know, that says something. It really does. You know, even the Yankees just recently lost three games in a row. So <laughs> these are things that happen to teams all the time. And I think I, I'm more impressed by how a team handles itself uh, after prosperous times and after you know thin times. And if they stay kind of the same, which is, I think, with the way the Mets are, uh, to me, that's what's most impressive. Uh, I think I read, maybe it was in your column yesterday, uh, since 1995, the Braves have won the division title in the NLE 16 times, the Mets only yep. twice. How much of that is a factor, or is it just part of history? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's a factor for the fans. I think that's the reason why the fans are so nervous, because, you know, it's the fans who build up history with the team, you know? I mean, you know... If, if you started rooting for the Mets in 1972, then 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 your your frame of reference for what the Mets did, or you know, same thing with any other team, is 1972 on. So you tend to lump all of that together, even though you know, you know, half the team's fathers weren't born before, you know, in 1972. Um, and so, I mean, I don't think it matters a bit to Brandon Nimmo or to Pete Alonso or to you know or or, or, or to Bassett that that the Mets you know had some have had some heartaches in the past because. 
it had nothing to do with them. You know, this team is an entirely different entity. I think that Buck has sold that part of it to them also. And nothing that comes, you know, nothing that came before years ago matters. But really, in Buck's view, nothing that came you know, yesterday matters. It's all about today's game. And he's got a bunch of players who have completely bought into that. And, you know, when, when players buy into a manager or a coach's vision like that, you know, good things generally happen. And that's really what's happened, I think, with the Mets. I'm not saying that Buck is responsible for pitching a shutout or hitting as many home runs and driving as many runs as, as Francisco Lindor or anything. But I do think that he set a tone from the moment he got the job, certainly from the first day of spring training, and it, and it shows in, in how the Mets have really kind of grinded their way through this season and you know, found a way to stay in first place for most of the first three and a half months of the year. A lot of people, Mike, thought that uh, the Mets gave Lindor uh, you know, an overpowering amount of money, but... Right, he had a, a three-run homer yesterday. He's, I think he's got 62 RBI at this point in time, which is what I think he had all of last year. I say they're getting their money's worth from him. They're getting their money's worth this year for sure. Look, they didn't get it. Look, they didn't get that last year. And who knows? In six years, you might look at that contract as a just just remarkable all-time epic albatross. But I mean, one of the good things about having a billionaire, you know, 15 times over like Steve Cohen as your as as, as your owner, is that you know. Taking those kind of risks doesn't bother him, so it shouldn't bother the, the fans. And look, I mean, you know, I, I hate to keep rehashing the past ownership and whatever sins they may or may not have committed, but the fact is that for a lot of different reasons, they weren't able to compete at anywhere near this kind of level financially, didn't have this kind of financial muscle, or reluctant to, 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 to play in the, in, in the deep end of the water uh, when it came to, to spending a lot of money. So, you know, when you had that for, you know, over 10 years, like, like that, like they did, you know, fans get get a little bit, uh, you know, beaten up by that. And, you know, I still think that, that, that it takes a lot of Mets fans some time to take a deep breath and say, whenever they see what they're, you know, this guy's making or what this guy may be commanding in, in, in free agent next year, it's like, it's a different game. I mean, this guy plays with Monopoly money and uh, that's to the Mets, you know, great good fortune right now. And, and you just have to, you have to, have to learn to, to adjust. So, to me, I mean, yes. I mean, the short answer to your question, and I know that was long-winded, was Lindor has definitely been exactly the kind of player that the Mets hope they would get. I mean, look, he's hitting 245, and I guess you know, neither he nor anybody else wants to be that low, but the production has been extraordinary, and he is a dynamic shortstop. And that's just a dynamic shortstop, but a steady one. The ball gets that's out of the infield, you know it's going to be an out. There's never even a doubt he's going to make a throw other than right, you know, chest high to Pete Alonso or Dominic Smith. Meanwhile, the Yankees, uh, with a double-digit lead in the division, uh, having said that, I can't see any major league team, particularly a Yankee team, or for that matter, a Met team, get too comfortable with a lead. And they've got a substantial lead right now. Okay, they, they're hitting a couple of rough bumps, and Aaron Judge in particular is going through a rough time now over the last four or five games, but... I could see it. I mean, at some point, you know he's going to snap out of it, and he's he can carry the team by himself. He can, and and look, yeah, I'll, I'll say this, uh, Howard. I think that the Yankees are in the absolute perfect position you can be in as a team because they're, you know, what fourteen games up in in, in their division, so they know that. Look, I, I I get it. You know, there have been comebacks in the past, nineteen fifty one, with the Giants, seventy eight with with the Yankees, but the Yankees are going to win the DLEs. I think that's pretty clear. Um, especially because it looks like everybody else below them is going to beat each other up. Amazingly enough, now the Orioles are a relevant team again. So they, so they know they're going to finish first in the AL East, but they also have something to play for in that they, they, they I think I think they pretty 
adamantly want to be able to finish with a better record than the Astros because I don't think they want Game 7 of an ALCS, assuming that both teams mm-hmm. are going to get that far in Houston. They'd rather have that game in, in New York. And so they, you know, they, 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 they have to stay sharp because they got to stay ahead of the Astros. So they really have the best of both worlds. They're going to, they're going to have the, you know, they, they have the comfort level of knowing that they have, you know, that big lead in the East, but they also, you know, I think they're, I think the last look, they were three and a half games ahead of the Astros. And uh, which means they're going to have to continue to play at the top of their game in order to kind of maintain that, that, that advantage. And, and it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's a great thing for them, I think, having both of those things. You, you know what everybody talks about, the Astros, they make the reference to science stealing and all of that stuff. I don't believe, personal opinion, I don't believe the Major League Baseball was tough enough uh, on the penalty. I thought it should have been more severe. It isn't. But uh, anytime the people mention the Astros, they're going to always come back to that World Series. Yeah, and, and, that, and that, that's both fair and unfair. I mean, it's fair because it's on, it's on their permanent record. And, you know, you should definitely, I think, excuse me, if you're a baseball fan, look, you know, kind of with uh, a little askance at the, you know, the fact they won that championship. But, you know, we're talking about five years later, and you're talking about an Astros team now that, you know, has, has, has lost. This, I mean, this is a team that's lost Garrett Cole. It's lost uh, Correa. It's lost Springer. And yet they're still the second-best team in baseball. Mm-hmm. So it's clearly that they're doing something right down here. And they've lost their general manager. They've lost their manager. So, I mean, something in the culture there, and I, you know, I really hate that word too as much as you do and everybody else does, but clearly something in the culture is, is going right there. Uh, they, I think they picked the absolute perfect manager, Dusty Baker. Uh, but, 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 but obviously, I mean, they, they're a team that has not at all diminished their product, even though they've taken some substantial losses uh, in terms of player personnel the last couple of years. Mike Vaccaro of the New York Post, uh, speaking about general managers, uh, we weren't, but as long as you mentioned general manager, how can you bypass a guy like Alex Anthopoulos, the general manager of the Braves, and what he did last year without Ronald Acuna Jr., who was on the shelf, and he went, he pulled the strings and got this player, and that filled an outfield with a whole different group of people, and they won the World Series. I could see this guy trying to make another big splash to help them against the Mets. Absolutely, and and, and I think you know that, that to me that was the the, the most feel good story about the Braves last year. I mean, obviously, when the World Series, that's the ultimate feel good story. But the fact is that. You know, I can remember they were in, they were in City Field not long before the training deadline last year. They had like a five game series with the Mets, and I think they won three out of five. I think I think the narrative was that they had lost three out of five and pretty much would have started waving the white flag, and they didn't. You know, they came out of that series you know reasonably five or six games behind the Mets and decided to go for it. And to me, that's a you know in a, in a time when we see too many teams that are blatantly tanking, which is just you know to me anathema to why you become a sports fan. Um, it's it's just so refreshing to see a guy who goes for it. Now he happened to he happened to hit all aces on on, 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 on his acquisitions. You know those are the players that really fuel their championship run, and they all played well in October. But and you can just as easily you know stumble and make, make terrible moves. So you know just going for it don't, doesn't guarantee you a thing. But I, mean, I love I, I love a general manager who goes for it. It's why you know switching sports. I mean. I don't think the Durant Kyrie Irving thing is going to wind up in history books as being a great thing for the Nets, but the fact is that uh, that, 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 that you know, Sean Marks decided to make a run for it, you know. And too often, general managers just trying to play it safe to to, to make sure they have a job next year. Uh, what Anthropolis did last year was say, you know what, I'm going to go for it. He really paid dividends. You know, dividends. You talk about uh, the the Nets situation. We've heard so many twists and turns to the story. 
Now we're hearing that they may wind up back in Brooklyn or Irving may come back even if Durant doesn't. The fact of the matter is it's going to be increasingly difficult to trade Kevin Durant because what do you consider fair value and what team is going to want to deplete their team to get arguably a great player? I understand that. And for Irving, uh, let's face it, his trade value has sunk considerably. Right. Well, I mean, look, I, mean, I, I think that the definition of fair value is going to have to change between now and the training camp. I mean, I can't for one minute believe that, uh, on, on, look, unless Kevin Durant wakes up one morning and, and has a legitimate change of heart and has a legitimate epiphany that he wants to be a net, um, the worst possible scenario is for those two guys to be in training camp and to start playing with Nets next year as unhappy players. Uh, the, the Nets can't possibly want that. That's, that's worse than losing them, is having them – you know, uh, as disillusioned and, and you know players. Um, so I think I mean I, I have a hard time believing that they're going to make the training team. I mean, uh, it's, it's impossible, of course not. But I mean, I think the Nets are probably going to have to readjust what they think is going to be what fair market value is for them. And I think other teams are going to have to adjust what they have to you know to to to, to, to do in terms of swallowing hard because those those are players that if you think you're just a move away from from, from genuine contention. You know, certainly Durant is a guy that if you can add him to your team, suddenly you take that last leap and it's going to be worth it. Yeah, no question. Taking a bite of the Big Apple with Mike Vaccaro, the post. Uh, yesterday the story came out pretty clear that uh, in mentioning Donovan Mitchell from the Utah Jazz and the Knicks' interest. Well, you're talking about a 25-year-old player, a star player, and a young kid in R.J. Barrett. And it would take, I think, at least R.J. Barrett to get Donovan Mitchell and the question is, how much is too much? And then you look at the Knicks, and I'll get to the Jalen Brunson thing in a second, but based on where they are right now, at bare minimum, they're a playing type team, maybe. Uh, does Donovan Mitchell make them better? Of course, but at what price? Right. I mean, to me, where, where the Knicks are right now is NBA hell because they're, you know, assuming they're not going to tank, they're, 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 they're you know, their roster projects to being a 37 to 44 win team for the next several years, and there's nothing worse in the NBA than that because you're not bad enough to to get uh, to get a jewel draft pick, and you're not good enough to actually do anything relevant during the regular season. So you're on this horrible, you know, hamster wheel, uh, going, going heading nowhere. Um, and I just think that look, look I mean, and, and, and I love RJ Barrett as a player. I love watching him develop from day one. I love how much he's improved. I think I think if you're Leon Rose, you have to ask yourself, you know, does he really have a higher ceiling? How high is that ceiling? Has he reached that ceiling? Um, to me, I mean, if you're talking about a young a young player with accomplishment against a younger player with upside, I mean, you take the young player with accomplishment every time, and you take your chances. Now, the 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 the, 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 the latest things, if you believe the things you've read the last couple of days, is that uh, is that Danny Ainge isn't actually interested in, in making a deal for R.J. Barrett. That there's a there, there's a there's a deal that exists where he isn't part of the trade. And obviously, if you're the Knicks, then you have to jump at that, even if it costs you four or five draft picks, because uh, you know, now you're looking at a team that, if it has both Barrett and Donovan Mitchell, is a team that can really, I think, be competitive um, you know, for, a, you know, for, 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 for a genuine playoff team. They're not, you know, for, for a genuine playoff spot, rather. I don't think they're as good as the Bucs or as good as the Heat, right? even, even with, with, with that scenario. But they're certainly a team you'll want to watch for each of games next year, as opposed to the one they have now. Well, the last year, the Eastern Conference was extremely deep and tougher. And so the Atlanta Hawks come up with uh, Murray to, cho to 
uh, could join Trey Young in the backcourt. They, you would look at them and say they're better. The Boston Celtics, uh, Malcolm Brogdon joins their team, as well as Gallinari to give him another shooter. So you, you have to believe that they're probably tougher. But I look at the Knicks. When they signed Jalen Brunson, and everybody's talking about tampering and all the rest, the fact of the matter is Leon Rose is the president of the Knicks. He represented Brunson. His son now represents Brunson. Brunson's father is an assistant coach. So we're hearing all of these rumors about a tampering charge. So what is the NBA going to do? Fine him $50 million? I mean, how, what punishment could justify what has been going on for years and will continue to go on? I think that's the point, Howard. It's been going on for years. The NBA knows it. Uh, they may feel like they have no other choice but to at least get the transit, you know, the, the, the transgression on the record. But I don't think it's going to be a crippling upon a penalty. If it is, I think, I think there's going to be a, a pretty pretty huge blowback because, uh, you know, there's been a lot of wink-winking going on in the league for, for years, and everybody around it knows it. Which would be more exciting? I can't say exciting. Which would be more explosive? A Mets-Yankees World Series to the New York fan. I mean, Mets-Yankees World Series or the Knicks playing the Nets in the NBA uh, or in the Eastern Finals? Oh, to me, it's, it's, it's Mets-Yankees. I mean, look, I mean, and, and look, I, I would enjoy that Nets-Knicks series because I'm a huge basketball fan. I, I actually grew up a fan of both the Nets and the Knicks given their different incarnations. Um, but you know what? I mean, the, 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 the Nets are still... You know, if, if, if you're ranking the list of New York teams, they, 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 they come in just ahead of maybe one or two of the hockey teams in terms of their history and their, 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 their the passion of the local interest. I mean, there are a lot of Nets fans out there. I think a lot of them live in Wichita, Kansas. I mean, I think a lot of people were, were Durant fans who became Nets fans and will either stay that way or go wherever Durant goes. Um, and, you know, the, the, the Knicks, you know, have probably more of a, uh, disparity between themselves and the other local team in terms of local interest, local passion, than anybody else in town. You know, Yankees versus Mets, Giants versus Jets, even the Rangers versus the combined forces of the Devils and the Islanders. Um, but I, and look, I mean, it, we, you asked about New York, so I mean, Yankees Mets would be just unbelievable in New York the way it was in 2000. Now that said, the flyover states will probably blissfully ignore it because the last thing they want is you know New York to celebrate itself, as we would do even if we aren't doing anything worthy of celebration. But uh, around here, Yankees, Mets, especially you know, look, I mean, even in 2000, I mean, look, I mean, the Mets were a second place team, and the Yankees had pretty much gone over September and backing into the playoffs. So those weren't those teams at their greatest iterations, and yet that even made you know the the the, the city you know stay up night for for a week while it was going on. But if it happens this year where if the Yankees are winning 110 games and the Mets come in off a 102-win season and, and they both get there after, you know, the, you know surviving their playoff gauntlets, I mean, I think it'd be something almost unprecedented. Mike Vaccaro, the New York Post. Uh, let me go back to Jalen Brunson for a second. He gets a contract in excess of $100 million. That is usually reserved for star players, all-star players. Uh, I, I don't put Jalen Brunson in that category yet. I think he's a very good player. I think it showed how desperate the Knicks are to get a point guard. And they got a guy that I believe is going to be a good fit. Now, what is it going to mean in terms of wins and losses? We'll find out. But uh, it shows you how, look, you can only fit 19,471 in Madison Square Garden. They're going to be there whether they win or lose. But it'd be nice to see a change, you know, in the whole culture of the team. Well, the thing that, 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 that the Knicks have been screaming out for for almost you know, since Derek Harper really has been a point guard, a mm-hmm. legitimate point guard, 
And it was really evident last year. I mean, they lost so many games last year in the last five minutes where they were just a disorganized mess on the floor. You know, and, and the exasperation you would see in Tom Thibodeau when he realized that nobody, you know, like by that point, Derek Rose was long gone. There was nobody that could really, he could really trust to be a floor leader. And nobody stepped up. There were a lot of just bad possessions, a lot of terrible defensive possessions. And, you know, that alone, uh, I, I think I think Brunson is a huge uh, addition because you know, he provides that that steadiness in important times. I mean, I'm not sure that, that that they blew enough games in the last five minutes where it was the difference between you know making a play-in game or not. But there were a lot of those games. I mean, that just they, they were just a disorganized mess on the floor. No matter how many timeouts Tom Thibodeau called, because they just didn't have a guy who's who was confident enough to to, to run the show. I mean, a lot of ways, you know, Julius Randle was trying to be a point forward and. I just, you know, I, I think he's one of those guys, and this isn't as big a criticism as it sounds, but there's a lot of things that Julius can do in the first, you know, 35 minutes of a game that he's incapable of doing in the last five minutes of a game, and that's just the nature of an NBA game. I mean, he can do a lot of, you know, electric things until the other team is paying attention to you, and then I think that you really need a point guard. You don't need a point forward who's kind of dabbling in playmaking. You need a guy who is a playmaker, and I think that's what makes, uh, you know, this addition so valuable. Well, one of the things that has to be sorted out early on is Jalen Brunson needs the ball. Julius Randle wants the ball. Uh, obviously, he's the one who's going to have to make an adjustment to his game. But let's not rule out the possibility that some team may come knocking at the next door and try to make a trade for Julius Randle. And that happens, you're going to have to listen because it'll offer them flexibility and it'll, offer, it'll make the lineup more flexible, too. I mean, to me, I mean, if there's a universe that exists where you can uh, we, we can offload Julius's contract and still keep Obi Toppin, even though it's hard to imagine that, you know, if you get uh, Donovan Mitchell and you don't have to give up R.J. Barrett, that you're going to be able to keep Obi Toppin also. But if you, if you can, if we, if we can, you know, at least for a minute, you know, think about a world where, where you know, Obi Toppin is still on the team and you offload Julius Randle. I take my chance to that. Is Obi at the level where Julius is right now? He's not. Will he ever get there? Who knows? But he's an electric player, an exciting player, and I think that, you know, in terms of what Tom Thibodeau is trying to do, now he's not an East defender yet, but he's also a guy who's willing to learn and willing to work hard. You know, what Tom Thibodeau is trying to do, I think that Obi Toppin might be, you know, you might be able to, to, to make that replacement. It's just going to be hard to see how he's moving. With all these moving pieces, you know, in play right now, in terms of if they're going to acquire Donovan Mitchell or not, it's going to be able to see, interesting to see what happens, you know, when they actually get to the end game. Real quick before I let you go, uh, I'm sure you get a lot of mail. Uh, some people agree with you. I imagine most. Some don't. What's the the harshest criticism you've ever gotten from a fan? <laughs> I got one this morning from from, from a guy who I, I I told him I appreciated his passion, uh, but he accused me of just being a shameless Mets toady because uh, <laughs> you know anybody can anybody with objective eyes knows that the Braves are just as diminished as the Mets are. So how could I call the Mets depleted? In the series, and you know, of course, that's clearly coming from a Braves fan. Who, you know, Ozzy Al- Albies is now Ernie Banks, and you know, uh, they, you know, they, they, it's, it's, it's you know, anybody with any kind of amount of reason realizes the Mets are the more depleted team for whatever that's worth. And again, that's not of course the Mets themselves hold on to, but it's just it's just you know, if you look at it objectively, I mean, they're missing you know two everyday All Stars in their lineup this this this, this, this series, and Degrom is still out, and you know, and the Braves. You know, after they lost Ozzy Albies, have still played 700 balls. So, um, and you know, and so you know, of course, he called me a toady, and then he asked for my uh, for, for for the email addresses to both my sports editor and the editor of the paper. So, um, 
I'm, I'm, I'm assuming it wasn't you know, to, to, to suggest that you're going to race. So. <laughs> <laughs> you got to plead to the crowd, right? Mike, always appreciate, exactly right. always appreciate your insight, man. You are still the best. Uh, thanks very much for your time, and you stay safe. Great talking, Howard. Anytime. He is Mike Vaccaro of the New York Post. <laughs> That's cute about fans calling up and calling him a Mets toady. And there's some truth to what he was saying about Ozzy Albies. He may not be Ernie Banks. He's a hell of a player. He is a hell of a player. And he's going to be out, could be, until September. So we'll see. See how it all shakes out. Hello. Uh, Mike, how are you? Hey, Howard. How are you? I can't complain. What Good. What proper content? You follow the Mets all the time. So what? Yeah. how do you put it in proper perspective? They beat the Braves two out of three. Uh, is that just another series? Uh, we still got 80-something games left to play or whatever it is. Or is it you take things for what it's worth? We did what we had to do. We won the games on the road. And we still got DeGrom coming back. And Scherzer looks like he's the same guy. So what? What? how would you define what they did? Well, I, you know, I, I think it's a good, um, you know, Matt Scherzer beat him in the first game Monday night, and he referred to it as a measuring stick. And I, I think that that's a good way to put it. This was kind of a measuring stick series to kind of see uh, where the Mets are at it in midseason. Now, it wasn't make or break by any means. You know, the, the Mets, uh, you know, the worst case, they were going to leave town a half game behind. But they, they went out one, two out of three, uh, maintained the lead at two and a half games. So... Uh, I, I think it was good for them in the sense that it showed, you know, the Braves have been playing such great baseball over the last six weeks. So for the Mets to go out and win that series on the road, let's go with measuring stick, as uh, Max Scherzer put it. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, look, the Mets and Braves are going to play 12 more times. And as soon as the early part of August, when they go to come to City Field, and what is it, they play five games in four days? Is that is, Am I accurate there? Yeah, it's, it's kind of a weird setup. Uh, part of it's due to uh, the games that uh, in, in that first week that got knocked out because of the lockout. So they're making making up uh, some of them. Then the Braves uh, only come in twice to City Field this year. They, they played four games the first time in. They'll play five games uh, this time in. Let me ask you this: uh, In speaking to a friend of mine, your colleague Mike Ficarro. He had uh, a note in his column, maybe it was yesterday or the day before, since 1995, the Braves have won 16 NLEs titles while the Mets have won just two. Does anybody look at that more than just his, a historical fact, or how would, you, uh, how would you qualify that? Well, the Mets have, been, uh, the Mets have not been good. They, they should, certainly should have more than two. Uh, you know, you look at where they've been over the last uh, really 15 years, They've only gotten to they got into the postseason twice in 15 years. One one of those uh, was a wild card. So um, yeah, the Mets the Mets you know listen it's a reflection on the Braves also that that great run they had in the 90s with with that crew Glavin and Smoltz and Maddox. But uh, you know for the Mets for the Mets to only have two over that stretch is is kind of embarrassing. So you look at, I mentioned Jacob deGrom. He comes back, uh, do, you have, do they have any kind of date, or is it just soon? Well, he's, uh, he's going to pitch a rehab game uh, for AAA Syracuse tonight. And then, uh, you know, we have the All-Star break 
and he, he's probably going to throw like a uh, simulated game down in Port St. Lucie, and then they're they're looking, you know, right out of the All Star break, they're hopeful um, that first Sunday maybe against the Padres, and if not, then uh, he was he would probably pitch in the Subway Series against the Yankees, which opens a, a week from Tuesday. Uh, you watch this team all the time. And you remember it wasn't that long ago when the Mets gave Francisco Lindor a huge contract. I think based on what I've seen, and it's not just the last couple of games, based on what I've seen so far this year, I think he's earning his money. Do you? He's having a very good year this year. Uh, now, earning his money, is, is anybody ever going to earn? <laughs> I, 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 you know, I, it, but put in the context, listen, he's having a, a very good year. I don't, I don't think... Mets fans can complain about the year Francisco Lindor is having. He's uh, he's putting up the numbers offensively. He's, he's already got 64 RBIs. Uh, he's got 16 homers. He's, he's played very good defense. So if you're a Mets fan and you're complaining about Francisco Lindor, I think it's misguided right now. He's, he's played very well for them. I think he has as many RBIs now as he had all of last year. Yeah, he had 63 last year. Yesterday he had a three-run homer to put him at 64. And then, of course, you go to Pete Alonso, and he's having an, a phenomenal year power-wise, uh, you know, knocking the ball out of the park, playing a good position at first base. So you're getting a lot of names, and, and, and yesterday everybody was pointing to the fact, well, the, Nets, the Mets are depleted. They're missing this guy. They're missing this guy. fact of the matter is, Braves are missing, still missing Ozzie Albies, a key part of their team. But being, look, this is part of the game, and it doesn't make a difference if it's base, baseball, basketball, football. You're going to have to play games without some of your better players. Yeah, and the Mets are getting one of them back tonight. Jeff McNeil's returned from the paternity list, and uh, they're hoping to get Starling Marte back, who's been sidelined for a few days uh, with a groin issue. But, uh, yeah, for the Mets to go out and win two out of three with a couple of key guys out of the lineup, that, you know, that only enhanced it a little bit more. Well, it's not only Lindor and Alonzo. You got a lot of young kids that are helping this Met team. Uh, I when I, well, look when they first hired Buck Showalter, I said brilliant. Uh, I happen to think the world of the guy and his ability as a manager, and I think this team has bought into him. Yeah, I, I think so too. They they kind of follow Buck's lead. They, he certainly has the confidence in the, that clubhouse. He's a guy. Uh, who's won before, who's taken teams to the playoffs. Uh, he's a smart guy. Uh, he doesn't leave any rock unturned. And uh, I think the players speed off of that. There's a, there's a lot of respect for Buck Walter. I would say this, Mike. We're talking with Mike Puma of the New York Post, taking a bite of the Big Apple. You haven't had DeGrom, haven't had Scherzer until recently. Uh, but what about Chris Bassett? He goes six innings yesterday, gives up a run, strikes out six. Uh, he's now seven and six on the air, and Carrasco, he's nine and four, but his ERA is up over four and a half. They have been godsend to a team that's missing two starters like Degrom and Scherzer. Yeah, both have been important, and you know Bassett hit a little bit of a rut uh, in June, and yeah, same went for Carrasco. Had a couple of rough starts, but all in all, uh, they, they really have saved their rotation. The one guy who's really stepped up is Taiwan Walker, who. Uh, you know, was borderline all star. He probably should be an all star, but he he kind of emerged as uh, as the ace of that rotation with uh, Degrom down, and that Scherzer was down for nearly seven weeks with the uh, oblique. 
So those three guys, uh, Walker, Carrasco, Bassett, uh, have been huge. Uh, you talk about um, this Mets team. They beat Atlanta two out of three. Now they face the Cubs, a sub-500 team. The Braves play Washington, also a sub-500 team. But I remember this Braves team last year. They lose Ronald Acuna Jr. And so you say to yourself, they're probably done. Well, Alex Anthropolis, the the general manager of the Braves, he pulled a couple of rabbits out of the hat, and I don't think it, it it's beyond belief that he could do it again. Yeah, I mean, they, they really reinvented themselves last year at the trade deadline. You look at, they went out and made the trades. Uh, they got uh, Solaire. They got Adam Duvall. Um, they got uh, Rosario. You know, they... They loaded up on the outfielders there at, at the trade deadline, uh, and it, it really it really made a difference down the stretch. Um, they were a different team, and listen, yeah, you you wouldn't expect them to sit tight. I wouldn't expect the Mets to sit tight. Yeah, they're they're, they're going to be looking for a couple of things here in August second. In uh, the National League, is it just the Mets and the Braves, and that's it? I wouldn't count out the Phillies. They they they've played. They've played really well uh, since the managerial change, and, you know, that's a scary lineup. Now, we know Bryce Harper's still going to be out for a little while there, but, uh, uh, you know, I think it's too early to count out the Phillies. All-Star break uh, begins Monday. Mets uh, uh, have passed the halfway point in in really good shape, 55 wins as they begin a weekend uh, series with Chicago while the Braves visit Washington, as I mentioned. I, uh, I'm very curious about this in a number of areas. Uh, probably, I mean, not probably, the only way we could see a Mets-Braves NLCS is if one of them is a wild-card team and the other one wins the division. Uh, and I, I don't know the logistics of that. But meanwhile, in, in the American League, you got the Yankees staring down the barrel of the Houston Astros, America's most hated team. And that, that to me, would be a hell of a series. That would, that would be a terrific series just because of uh, the history between the two franchises and, uh, you know, there's some dislike there, obviously, because of uh, Spygate and, uh, the, the, the you know, stealing the signs. Uh, listen, the, the Yankees are having uh, what looks like could be a historic season here, but uh, the Astros play them really well, uh, and I think they have a... Uh, I think they have a series coming up, or at least a, a couple of games coming up right out of the break. So, you know, those games are fun to watch. But if you're a baseball fan, I think that that's what you'd love to see in the ALCS is, is Yankees-Astros. If, and the New York sports fan, particularly the New York baseball fan, if it comes out to be the Yankees and the Mets in the World Series, I, it's easy to see it's going to be huge. The question is, would that kind of a series turn the city upside down? Turn it upside. Uh, I don't know. If turn turn upside down. Listen, it's been what twenty two years since we last had a subway series. So in that regard, I guess so. Uh, yeah, I guess it would, it would turn. You know, I, I don't know how you would quantify it, yet, but uh, it, it would be enormous. Which would be bigger, Mets Yankees, Jets Giants in the Super Bowl? Well, the Knicks and the Nets in the NBA championship. Oh, they couldn't in the Eastern final. You know, I, I would have to go with, 
a Jets Giants Super Bowl for a couple of reasons. Now, as I mentioned, we've already had a Subway Series. We've never had a Jets Giants Super Bowl. But the Jets haven't been in the, the Super Bowl in most people's lifetime. It's, it's been over a half century. So just the Jets getting to the Super Bowl alone, I think, uh, would make Jets Giants uh, number one. Uh, on the list. Let me ask you this. As, as you cover the Mets, and I read your articles every day, um, and you're pretty honest uh, about things. I mean, you don't try to puff, uh, write puff pieces, but have you ever gotten any kind of criticism from uh, a reader that says, you, you know, you're favoring the Mets too much or you're not pumping them up enough? Either way. Oh, I, I, I hear it both ways. I hear it that, you know, that uh, you're too easy on the Mets and then. Uh, you know, the next day you'll hear from somebody saying you're too critical of the Mets. So, uh, yeah, I get that all the time, whether it's uh, in emails, uh, on Twitter. But, uh, you know, that's just, uh, you know, everybody's got kind of their own perspective. Well, every time you go into a locker room, you interview somebody. Is there an interview that you have never forgotten because it made an impact on you? interview I've never forgotten because it made an impact you know that's one I'd have to think about uh, you know I, I I don't have one off the top of my head Howard uh, you know I'm, I'm sure if I sat down and, and made a list I'd, I, but when you you know when you, a, a locker room interview impact I, I, I would say nothing comes to mind right now well it, it the only reason why I brought it up to you is that I'm in the middle of writing a book on some of the things that have happened to me during the course of my career. And if there was an interview that stood out, considering who it was with, it was an interview I did at Augusta with Arnold Palmer, um, the, the year he played his last Masters, because I was covering it for CBS Radio. And then I see him behind the clubhouse uh, talking to some people, and I went over to him and I said, excuse me, Mr. Palmer, I said, can we do a taped interview? He says, absolutely. He brings me over to the, there's a big tree right behind the clubhouse, with chairs underneath it. Let's sit here out of the heat. Do you know I did? I, I only wanted to do 15 minutes with the guy. We wound up doing it. We wound up doing an hour, and he wouldn't let it end. And so, the first question I asked him was, "Where did this love affair for Arnold Palmer come from here at Augusta?" He stopped. He looked at me, and he goes, "Wow, <laughs> what a great question!" Uh, I, and he gave me a, he gave me a great answer. Now we fast forward to a year later, and I'm walking behind the clubhouse at Augusta, getting ready to go to my broadcast position, and Arnold Palmer's standing there. He sees me, and he waves at me, and then I wave back, and he, 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 he asked me to come over. He goes, I apologize. I know your first name is Howard. I forgot your last name, but I, I just wanted to say hi, and I said, Mr. Palmer. He says, Arnie. I said, okay, Arnie. You've been interviewed by a thousand people. How do you remember me? He said, because of the question you asked me, I never forgot it. Where does this love affair come from at Augusta and Arnold Palmer? You know, how, you know, I felt like I wanted to leap off a tall building. <laughs> <laughs> that is a terrific story. Well, it's it's all true. It's um, you know, like let's face it, you you come across a guy like Arnold Palmer if you're lucky once in your life. Yeah. So I'm yeah, gonna. I mean yeah, go, go ahead. No, uh, yeah, 
I'm, I'm sitting here trying to rack my brain a little bit at one that really jumps out. I'll, I'll probably come up with it the, the minute I hang up. But no, that's all right. I got, that's I okay. Right now. That's okay. Uh, before I let you go, uh, look, the, the Braves, uh, the Mets beat the Braves two out of three. Um, if I say that the, one of the things that came out of this, I think it gives the Mets confidence. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd say it, it gave the Mets confidence here just uh, to, to go out and uh, and beat a team that's been uh, red hot and to do it without a, a couple of key guys. Well, the, the biggest thing is DeGrom's coming back. Scherzer, we've already seen. He's the same guy. And I'm only making a two-game sample of that, but I've seen enough. Hey, Mike, appreciate your insight on the Mets, and you stay safe. All right, Howard. Thanks. Take care. Mike Puma, the New York Post, covers the New York Mets. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't profess in seeing things in the future. I do know this. The Yankees are going through, believe it or not, a little bit of a rough patch. But Aaron Judge is too good a player. Too good a player to go through an extended slump. He's going through a rough patch. Now his average has dropped about 10 points. He'll be back. Stanton is still hitting the long ball. He got one last night, and they went a crazy end with a couple of wild pitches that brought uh, D.J. LeMayu home with the winning run in the 10th inning. I like this Yankee team a lot. I like this Mets team a lot. But I think that the Yankees having to deal with the Houston Astros probably later in the year into the playoffs and maybe to the ALCS. I look at the Mets and say, if they can dispose of the Braves, and that's easier said than done, I'm trying to figure out where else they're going to get a challenge. The answer is obvious. It's in Los Angeles because the Dodgers are for real. Appreciate your time. You stay safe. Thanks for being a part of Howard David Live. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.